Well, as we kick off Advent, boy, it came quick, seemed like it always does. Uh, I love this season for so many reasons. Some of them are significant and meaningful and theological. Some of them are really superficial and shallow. But I like them all. And you have your reasons as well. There's so many reasons. The lights, the decor, the presence, the hot cocoa, the eggnog, if you're Presbyterian. The pajama family photos, some of you that's like a highlight, some of you that's the worst part about it. The parties, the weather, the smells, the white elephant gifts, the time off, the sales. We can enjoy all those things, or at least some of them. But as cliche as it is, we know the real reason for the season. And two of my favorite Advent passages actually don't get a lot of airtime. I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, One, I actually did my first Advent here five and a half years ago now, and it was Hebrews 2. And it tells us explicitly the reason the Son of God took on flesh and blood, the reason for Christmas, the reason for the incarnation, according to Hebrews 2, is that he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's my first favorite passage. But this morning we get to consider my second favorite passage, which really says the same thing. So this morning we're going to consider 1 John 3, 8b together. That says this, if you're looking at our... A few Bibles, it's page 960. 1 John 3, 8, just the second half, tells us the explicit reason for Christmas. At least one of them. 1 John 3, 8, B. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I looked at the message, the paraphrase puts it this way, the Son of God entered the scene to abolish the devil's ways. And so let's look at each phrase of this verse together. First, the Son of God appeared. Church, may this truth never get old. The Son of God appeared. Of course, Jesus is the Son of God, and he appeared. He came just as God had promised that he would. He hasn't left us to ourselves. He didn't stay in heaven, which he could have. You know, he didn't have any need to come here. He had no lack. He was perfectly content in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But out of love, he came. He appeared. A day of glory, as we sing, a day, a day of promise, a hope to end our woe, a day that tells of triumph against our vanquished foe. In flesh his entrance humble, the swaddling clothes his robe, the meek displayed in power, the prince of peace now known. Let angels shout the triumph as mortals raise their voice. Behold the son of heaven and earth, the king of kings is born. Gloria. The son of God appeared. Why? Well, according to the song and according to our text, triumph against our vanquished foe. He came in order to destroy the works of the devil. Well, who's the devil? He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of God's people. He's the enemy of all good. The word devil means accuser or slanderer. Satan means adversary. He's the enemy. He's the main enemy, the arch enemy. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. There are many demons, many principalities and powers, but he's the ringleader. He's the prince of them all. And I don't think I have to say that in these walls, but in other places, it just needs to be stated that he's real. 
He exists. You know, we live in the age of enlightenment rationalism, the age of the anti-supernatural, the age of empiricism that says we can only know what we can sense. It's the, it's the pervasive philosophy in all of our universities, empiricism. All knowledge comes from experience and observation. Well, we can't sense the devil. We can't observe him. So many dismiss him. He doesn't exist, according to many, which is fine by him. As the French poet put it, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. That's who the devil is. What are the devil's works? The word here, it's in the plural. He came to destroy the works of the devil, plural. Well, what are they? More could be said, more could always be said, but let me just list seven of what I think the scripture teaches of his main works. Number one, temptation. The devil tempts. In fact, Jesus himself calls him in Matthew 4 the tempter. The enemy tempts the people of God to disobey God. The chief end of man, the catechism says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Satan does everything he can to see that mankind actually does the opposite of that. The chief end of the devil is to cause mankind to seek to glorify self and enjoy self forever. He wants to tempt you away from honoring God. Flip back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Early on in the Bible, first few chapters, look at Genesis chapter 3. Let's read together verses 1 to 6. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree, of fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Everything was fine here. And the enemy comes in, slithers in, and tempts Eve to disregard her maker. And that's what he wants to do with you. He wants to incite rebellion in you against God. So that's what he does, number one, is he tempts. Number two, he questions God's word. We see it right here. And to question God's word, friend, is to question God. His word is just an extension of himself. And right from the beginning, he comes to the woman and he says what? Did God really say? Did God actually say? See, he wants people to doubt God and he wants people to doubt God's word. God had given here in Adam and Eve, had given them an ocean of yeses with one clear prohibition. And the devil says, no, 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 he didn't say that. You can't trust his word. Trust my word. Trust your own thoughts. 
See, the enemy wants the children of God to doubt the word of God, and he will use any means that he can in order to do that. Any and all means to make you doubt his word, whether it's peer pressure or cultural pressure or pop culture or even theologically liberal Bible professors. The enemy wants to question the truth of God's word. In verse 1, he tries to instill doubt about God's word. But then in verse 4, he just flat out denies it. And notice what doctrine is denied first. Did you catch it? Look back at Genesis 3 verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He denies the doctrine of God's judgment. God said they would die. The devil flat contradicts them. To deny the doctrine of judgment is ultimately satanic. And there are various heresies out there, some that are very popular, like universalism or inclusivism. Both basically teach that at the end of the day, no one goes to hell. Everyone will be saved, whether they trust in Christ or not. Universalism teaches, inclusivism teaches, says that Jesus saves people even if they don't know about Jesus. Just not taught in scripture. In fact, here we learn that Satan was the first universalist. And Satan has been deceiving people into believing that there's no such thing as hell ever since. He denies the doctrine of God's judgment. He questions God's word. Number three, what else does he do? What, are, what else is another work of the devil? He questions God's goodness. He wants to sow a seed of doubts about the goodness of God in the minds of God's people. You see what he does with Eve. Look again at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the idea here is that you'll be the one who determines what's good or evil. And so he comes in and he questions God's word, and then he contradicts God's word. And then through a forked tongue, he whispers in your ear, you can't trust him. He's withholding from you. He's a killjoy. He doesn't know best. He doesn't have your best in mind. For true joy, you need to disregard him, the serpent says. You need to disregard eternity, disregard judgment. True joy is found in the things of this world, in the here and now. You do you, YOLO. He wants to question God's goodness. And so he encourages them and he encourages us to seize autonomy, self-rule. Forget his rule, rule yourself. He tempts us to seize autonomy and to redefine goodness. Forget God's rule, rule yourself. Forget his definition of goodness. Make up your own. And just take note here of the, the anatomy of a temptation that we find here in Genesis chapter 3. The devil wants to instill doubt about God's word. He wants to downplay God's goodness. He wants to magnify God's strictness. He wants to lessen God's judgment. And then he flat out denies God's word. And he promises blessing and benefit for disobedience. And friends, the devil never keeps his promises. Fourth work of the devil is that he lies. The devil is a liar. Revelation 12 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. He wants to deceive you. John 8, Jesus is talking. He says that when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character. Lying is his native language. At his core, in other words, he lies. He wants to deceive. He wants to outwit. He wants 
to lead you astray based on his evil schemes. He wants you to believe lies. He wants you to believe lies about the character of God. He wants you to believe lies about who you are. He wants you to believe lies about eternity. He wants you to believe lies about the world and the way the world works. He's a liar. Related to that, fifth, he promotes false teaching. He promotes lies and specifically lies about the Bible. It's what he wants. He wants to distort God's word. He wants error in the church. He wants pastors saying wrong things. He wants pastors compromising. He wants teachers avoiding the hard parts of Scripture. He wants churches changing their views about the Bible because of cultural pleasure to make it more palatable to most modern people. He wants churches changing their views of sexuality and advocating universalism and distorting gender roles and neglecting church discipline and on and on and on. He wants error in the church. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, we call them the pastoral epistles. Written largely to church leadership, but it's for the church, about how the church is to be ordered and structured. And in 2 Timothy 2.24, it says that pastors must correct their opponents, and God may grant them repentance, quotes, and they, these, these people in error, these false teachers, quote, may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice what it says there. Pastors will have to correct error. Gently, of course. Correct opponents of sound doctrine. And how does he describe the false teachers here in these verses? He says they're ensnared by the devil. False teachers, those who teach contrary to the word of God, are trapped by Satan. False teachers have been captured By the devil, that's what he wants. He wants to lie. He wants to promote false teaching. He wants to ensnare Bible teachers. Listen to the way Colossians 2 warns the church. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. What are the elemental spirits of the world? They're demons. Remember, there's many demons. He's just the prince. And so demons want to take you captive. And how do they do it according to Colossians 2.8? Through hollow and deceptive philosophy. How do demons want to take you captive? Through false ideas. Through bad ideas. And so beware. Don't let anyone take you captive. Listen to the way 2 Corinthians 11 says it. Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpents... Deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Just like the serpent deceived Eve, he wants to deceive us. He wants to lead us astray from a pure devotion to Christ. He wants to change our thoughts from God's word to his word. And so the devil promotes false teaching. Sixth work of the devil is he distracts. In America, especially where many people don't acknowledge the supernatural, I think this is one of his most strategic tactics. Just distract. You know, in Abilene, Texas, you're not going to find a lot of explicit Satan worship unless you hang out at Lake Fort Phantom on a Friday night. (laughs) Most people aren't explicitly worshiping or following the devil, but you know what you will find is people worshiping all sorts of trivial things. 
Remember, we worship what we prioritize. How do we know what we worship? Well, it's whatever we're thinking about all the time. It's what we spend our money on. It's what we invest our time in and talk about and daydream and focus on. And he wants to distract. He wants to distract you from God and move you to focus on the trivial, the superficial, the worldly. He wants to keep us distracted from God. Ephesians 2 says that before we came to Christ, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Before Christ, all of us followed the devil. Maybe like, well, no, 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 I, I didn't follow the devil. Well, you did. You just didn't know it. You just thought you were doing whatever you wanted to do. You were just going with the flow. You were just living like the rest of the world. You were just living for self. Going with the flow like cattle following cattle in a line headed straight for the slaughter. Last week, I took the kids to a place called James Ranch. And they were just boasting about how, how pampered the cattle were. You know, the best, best fed cattle in all of Colorado. Grass fed, stress free, free range, all natural fertilizers. You won't find more healthy soil. You know, those cows might be tempted to think that they were living the good life. And they were, temporarily. But they were being prepared for slaughter. Satan wants you comfortable. Satan wants you distracted. Even with good things that aren't ultimate things. He distracts. And he distracts from the word. What does it mean to be distracted from God? It means to be distracted from God's word. Do you remember the parable of the soils back in Matthew 13? It's been a little while. Let me remind you. Matthew 13 or Mark 4. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones sown along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Did you know right now as the word is going out, Satan is active to keep the word from implanting in your heart? And so how does Jesus apply that parable? Here's what Jesus says. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. What does Jesus say? He says, pay attention to what you hear. This little 45 minutes that we have together is so vitally important. And this isn't the only time. He wants to distract you from hearing the word. He wants you on your phone more than on your knees. He wants you scrolling social more than seeking him. He wants you distracted from what matters most. And then the seventh and final work of the devil is that he accuses He's the accuser. He loves to induce guilt in God's people. He launches fiery darts. Ephesians 6. When you sin, not if you sin, because we all sin. When you sin, he pounces and he wants you to doubt God's love for you. And he whispers in your ear, you're not lovable. God could never love someone like you. In fact, he hates you. You're such a disappointment. You're a failure. You've blown it this time to the point of no return. He accuses the brethren night and day. Those are at least some of the works of the devil. The the verse says that the Son of God came. The reason for Christmas is to destroy the works of the devil. And so how does the Son of God destroy the works of the devil? Well, Genesis 3. He crushes his head. 
Genesis 3.15, that first gospel promise that theologians call the proto-euangelion, first gospel. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Genesis 3.15, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we learn of this great antithesis, this great opposition, this enmity. There will be ongoing perpetual animosity and hostility between the offspring of the woman, the people of God, and the offspring of the serpents, the world's. And so Christianity is war. Why? Because Satan is real. But right here, God promises that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Evil will be defeated. Satan will be destroyed. And in fact, that's what Jesus came to do. Let's walk together a little bit just through a few New Testament passages to see this theme of Christus Victor. Christ the Victor. Christmas is about Christus Victor. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Matthew chapter 12, let's pick up at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan... He's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Of course, we know that it is by the Spirit of God that Jesus cast out demons. And the kingdom of God did come upon them. God is taking back the world through the Son. The Son of God has bound the strong man and is plundering his good. That word bound is the same Verb that's used in Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is bound so that the gospel now will go to the nations. Revelation 20 verse 3, before it was really restricted really to one nation. But now, at the cross of Christ and the resurrection, the gospel goes everywhere. He's bound the strong man and he's plundering his goods. He's taking over slowly but surely. One author puts it this way, this is a central part of the message of the New Testament. Jesus took the devil's stuff. Turn over to Luke 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke. The strong man's been bound. Luke chapter 10. The gospel goes forward. This is when Jesus had sent out the 72 on mission. Look at Luke 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall 
hurt you. As the gospel was being preached by these 72 ordinary Christians, Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning. His authority is being stripped from him. Turn over to the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 12. Verse 31. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The devil is cast out. At the cross, decisively defeated, destroyed. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Flip over a couple chapters to John chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Flip over to John chapter 16, verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. See, at the cross, Jesus defeats him. And then he's raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God. All authority has been given to him. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He has all authority. Flip over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Favorite Christmas passage. Hebrews 2.14. Since, therefore, the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise, partook of the same things. In other words, here's the reason why Jesus took on flesh and blood. Jesus, the eternal son, took on flesh and blood. So we celebrate at Christmas. Here is telling us why. He himself partook of the same things that so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. My favorite reason for Christmas is that because of the death of Jesus, we have no reason to fear death. And if we don't have any reason to fear death, we have reason to fear nothing. It's the reason he came. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He does so by his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God. Well, now let's consider how Jesus helps us then against the works of the devil. How does he help us against these seven works? Satan can't keep the gospel from going forward, Matthew 12, Revelation 20, but he's still alive. He's still active. He's like a wounded animal, more dangerous than ever, but on his way out. In principle, finished. But the battle rages on. As Luther put it in his hymn, Lo, his doom is sure. Well, let's think about these seven works of the devil and how Jesus helps us. First, temptation. Jesus helps us when we're tempted. He sends the Spirit of God who helps us 
fight sin. As believers now, we have the Spirit of God and we're able to say no to sin. 1 Corinthians 10 puts it this way, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have the power to obey. We have the power to overcome temptation. Jesus gives us that power through the gift of the Spirit, but he also shows us the way, right? You remember when he's tempted? Jesus himself is tempted by the devil. Remember what he does? Quote scripture three times in a row. Matthew chapter 4. So when Satan tempts you with some particular lie to believe, it's important that you know the scripture to combat it. Psalm 119.11, I've stored up my word, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus helps us with temptation. He gives us the power we need. He shows us the way, quoting scripture. But he's also at work right now. He's exalted. Jesus is alive and well. You know what he's doing? He's still working on your behalf. Romans 8 says he's interceding for you. He's praying for you that you'd be faithful, that you would overcome temptation. What about number two, the questioning of God's word? Satan wants us to question God's word. How does Jesus help? Well, no one had a higher view of scripture than Jesus. He himself said the scripture cannot be broken. He points to it again and again and again. So when Satan uses various means to cause you to doubt God's word, follow Jesus. Go with the way of Jesus, which is to trust God and trust his word. What about the questioning of God's goodness? Number three, when Satan tempts you to question God's goodness, look no further than the cross. There's no greater proof of God's goodness to you than Calvary. The fact that he sent his one and only son to redeem us from our transgressions. Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. What about lies? In fact, we can put lies and false teaching together. We combat lies with scripture. Ephesians 6 says that we take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 2 Corinthians 10 puts it this way, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is our enemy again? What are the methods, the schemes, the tactics of the enemy? Bad ideas, Colossians 2, 2 Corinthians 10. False ideology. Our enemy is bad ideas. How do we fight bad ideas? With good ideas. In fact, with God's word that has power. And so we need to know part of how we gain victory is we know our enemy. We know his tactics. Again, 2 Corinthians 2.11 warns against being outwitted by Satan because we're not ignorant of his designs. And so we know that he's a liar. No, we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard about being outsmarted by him, outwitted by him. Why? Because the scripture says we're familiar with his schemes. We know what he's up to. We know how he works. Ephesians 6 commands us to put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes 
of the devil, the strategies of Satan. We combat his lies with the truth of God's word. How will he seek to affect you? He wants to lie to you. Ask yourself, by what means in my daily life can Satan lie to me? How do you hear lies? That's where we got to curate our inputs. Today, probably more than ever, we have messages and information coming at us from all different sorts of media. And so we've got to have these scriptural lenses on. Knowing that the enemy wants us to imbibe false ideas. What about the sixth work, distraction? Well, Jesus shows us the point of our existence. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we need to keep God before us at all times. Listen to the way James puts it. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a, what a precious promise. Resist him and he will flee. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded. Be serious. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. And so we're not distracted because we're on guard. We're sober-minded. We're watchful. And we're living for the glory of God. As our core values say, we want to worship Jesus in all of life, not just here for an hour on Sunday mornings. What about accusation? He's the accuser. As we sing, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. The powers of darkness have been triumphed over. They have been mocked. And I love the imagery. They've been disarmed. They have no weapons anymore. Because our debt has been canceled. Before Christ, they could accuse us. Rightly so. After Christ, they have no claim on us because they have no claim on Christ. Shane and Shane have a song called Embracing Accusation. You can check it out after service. When Satan comes and tells you you're not worthy of salvation. When he tells you you're cursed, you've gone astray, you need to realize that he's actually singing the song of the redeemed. He's singing our song. He's just forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. We are cursed and gone astray. But Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse in our place. Fiery darts of accusation 
are extinguished by the shield of faith. Church, the reason for the season is the destruction of our enemy. Christmas is about destruction. Here's how the NASB puts it. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Merry Christmas. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 